Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden Scribes. I am Mark Million, and today I have the privilege of introducing you to a very talented young author. Today's episode is going to be a little longer than most. We typically have an internal policy of trying to keep it to as close to 30 minutes as possible, but just wasn't going to happen this week, guys. Uh, my conversation with the author we have for today and the selections themselves demanded more time. So as much as I trimmed and and coaxed and teased what I hope is the best meats of our conversation and of his work, uh, yeah, it, it's 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 long. So it's about twice as long as typical, but I think you'll agree that it's worth it. After weeks of collaboration, I have gotten to know him a little bit, his attention to detail, his passion for his work and his vast breadth of vision. Precious listeners, I bring you Sam Lai. Sam. Hi. I feel like we've walked a long road to get here today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What are the selections that we're going to hear today? Okay, so there's going to be two sort of excerpts from uh, what I'm working on. Oh, they're both about a kid named Alex. In the first excerpt, he's dealing with these kind of supernatural dreams, uh, which he's trying to figure out and also, you know, dealing with normal teenager stuff the second excerpt basically alex has very recently found out that his dad who he's never met has died and then he and his mom uh go off to the funeral and he's sort of in a weird situation because he doesn't know what's going on and he doesn't know anything about his father i have to say that before we get started this is a story i'm very excited about so without any further ado my name is sam and this is the year of cosmic apologies. Alex tried not to think about the dreams very much, but he couldn't forget the feeling of them. It was like there was someone he really was somewhere, a life that was really his. And the Alex in this body, in the airplane or bedroom or school cafeteria, that was the Alex that was sleeping. And the dream, that, that was the real him. And in each dream, he was someone else. Or something else. Something beautiful and perfect and strong and free. Everything he wasn't. Not here. He was a cat or a giant or some kind of tree person who could grow his limbs back. Or an orca or a dragon or just another boy that wasn't him. And every time he woke up it was like he'd been abducted. Abducted from somewhere safe without any warning. Like he was half this moz stick being pulled away from the other, and there were these tiny little oozing strings of him still attached to the night, still trying not to let go. Oh, that's a weird metaphor, but I think I get what you're saying, said Remy. Alex sat in the cafeteria. He looked lethargically between the two halves of his cheese stick. Remy continued. Oh, are you going to eat that, though? Alex sighed and stuck both halves in his mouth. Okay, thought you were going to give half to me, but guess not. I didn't didn't want it anyway. Uh, look, Alex, maybe it's just hormones, right? Maybe since your brain is full of weird metaphors, it's just making up more weird metaphors for, for puberty, but like, unconsciously? Alex chewed thoughtfully. Like, like in your dreams? Remy added. Alex rolled his eyes. No, no, no. Good thought, but no. 
The dreams, Remy, they're too real and they happen way too often. And wouldn't puberty dreams have more, you know, body horror involved? Or like sexy No times. one says sexy times, Alex. My point stands. Um, maybe they're like your past lives. Oh, maybe they're my past lives. Um, I mean, no. Science. Science explanations. He smacked the back of one hand into the palm of the other for emphasis. You don't even like science, said Remy. Yeah, but I need it. There's got to be a way that this is all totally normal, you know? Explainable. Could be one or the other, said Remy. Could be it's explainable, but non-normal. Alex flicked a fry off his plate, and it landed on Remy's. Remy just stared at it. You have something to say, just to say it, said Alex. Maybe, uh, uh, maybe you should talk to... Alex took the fry back. He didn't want to hear Karthik's name. On second thought, he said, don't. Neither Mom nor Gary were there when he got home, but Alex shut the door to his room anyway. He started Googling, turning into animals during dreams for the 500th time. He stopped before he finished the sentence. Instead, he searched cats wearing battle gear. He wasn't disappointed. Alex lay back on his bed, paused, debated in his brain very briefly, and then sat back up. He logged into Karthik's cloud drive and clicked on the video folder. Maybe one day Karthik would think of changing the one password he had for everything, but today was evidently not that day, and Alex could still invade his privacy, no matter how much he hated himself for it. Whatever, it's not like Karthik was thinking about him anyway. He had other more important things to do, like recording his new friends breaking into someone's pool, or recording his new friends doing some mediocre skateboard trick. Here was one of him playing the guitar for some girl. Here he was doing a backflip. Okay, that was pretty cool. But it felt like hundreds of these videos, at least one per day, of Karthik and company being photogenic and dangerous and goofy. That was a gift, of course. Looking, feeling in real life like you do on camera. He'd stopped imagining he was one of them a long time ago, if he ever had. What would be the point? Of course he was jealous, but jealousy didn't give you the capability to turn into someone new. He wasn't the kind of person that could just snap his fingers and switch lives. That was the giant irony of his dreams, that they never happened voluntarily, and in the end, they always, always hurt. Meanwhile, Karthik upgraded himself into cool Karthik in a day. He did it without breaking a sweat. One day he was sitting with Alex and Remy, goofing off, telling bad jokes. The next day he was sitting at another table. No warning, no words. He just laughed. It was like he realized one day that he could do better and then decided to go for it. Good for him. No, really. Alex was oddly happy for his friend, watching him nerf gun war on a roof somewhere with other flawless-looking 14-year-olds. He felt lucky to watch it all, lucky to have known one of them, even if it made him sick at the same time. Fine, maybe he did imagine being there, 
sometimes. They'd be on a roof somewhere, the sun setting, all the Nerf gun pellets lost and everyone catching their breaths. They lie on their backs in a row to watch the non-existent stars. Karthik is next to him. It gets cold, so they all snuggle up together. There's laughing and some obligatory innuendos. Karthik tries to tickle him, but Alex is faster and knows Karthik's weak spots, jabs him in the stomach. Karthik grabs the hand by his belly and intercepts the other one on its way to his neck. Their fingers interlock. Their arms extend. This is where Alex stays. In this moment, they could be skydiving. The gravel beneath them could disappear and the wind could rush up from below. They could hold on and spin out like helicopter blades. Alex slammed his laptop shut. He felt stupid and embarrassed for thinking any of that. His face and neck were hot and itchy. He scratched. Of course Karthik wouldn't want to be friends with him, because he, he always got weird like that. He always made it weird. He could never just be chill and let things be. His neck was on fire now. He scratched harder. What was he doing creeping on someone's videos anyway? What a dumb, creepy, pathetic thing to do. Alex scratched until he was scraping his skin. What, what was this? Why was he so itchy? And then there was that crackling, stretching pressure in his bones, almost like... But no, no, he was, he was awake. A prickly pain shot up his sides. It burned and itched like everything else, but it was sharp and concentrated, like it was going up a vein. It forked out into fractals, like frost. It crawled up his throat and burst up his chin. And then, and then Alex could taste it. It was bitter and metallic, and Alex didn't wait to find out what else. He spit and coughed until his face was purple. He clawed at his skin. He rolled off his bed and thudded to the floor. Now he was staring at the ceiling, the pain and the metallic taste fading from the back of his mouth. It was dark, just the last light of the day slipping in through the closed blinds. He waited for something more to happen, something worse. Nothing did. So he got up, slowly. Ow said Alex. He had tripped on something on his way to the door. It was something stupid, too. An old toy truck he'd kept around for sentimental reasons. He kicked it away and looked up. Froze. There was the mirror Mom had gotten him for his door weeks ago. It was leaning against the wall beside the dresser, partially covered by a shirt he'd thrown in that direction. Was it the dark and the shirt covering part of his face, or was something odd about his reflection. He waved his hand and the reflection waved back. It's not like he ever really recognized himself in the mirror either, so maybe it was nothing. It was nothing. Alex walked towards the mirror and pushed the shirt away. Karthik's face looked back at him. Alex looked out the window of the black Lexus. The trees along this road were thin and perfectly straight, densely packed and so close on either side that Alex thought he could touch them if he stuck his finger out the window. 
He could also see the vague outline of his reflection. Stupid, messy hair. Stupid, weird face. If he didn't know better, he would wish he could change it all, to be something else or someone else. But he did know better, so he focused on the trees again. He watched their branches through the skylight, dipping down in the wind, forming a roof above his head. They drove for a bit through the forest, and after ten minutes joined up with a cavalcade of two dozen more black Lexuses, all forming a long, somber line. After some waiting, they turned onto a perfectly paved one-lane road and then picked up speed again. Alex felt a pressure on his hands and noticed that his mother was squeezing it, that she'd been holding it the whole car ride, not tightly as if she needed him, not warmly as if he needed her, Their hands were just together, like they'd always been like that, like they didn't know anything different. Alex looked up. The woods fell away, and his eyes fixed on a shape in the distance. Holy mother of babies, he said. That's not a house. That's that's a house for, for whales, he swore and blinked. Well, they do call it the big house, said Mom. She'd sat up, too looking, sounding more like her normal self. They watched the house rise out of the hills. It was still far in the distance, but growing larger every second. Mom put her hand up to the window, just barely. Then she put it down again, like she was a kid at a zoo remembering not to tap the glass. This was a palace, the kind of place Alex didn't think existed in America. At least eight stories high and sprawling across the top of the tallest hill, all white and sandstone and glinting bronze roofs. This was the kind of place kings lived. Emperors. It was the kind of place they were buried, too. As they approached, Alex could make out more than a general shape. It was hectic with windows, towers, and colonnades, like it was a whole village fused into a single complex. But it was all unified, chorus of shapes and designs all coming together to look both foreign and familiar. And in the center of it was a grand octagonal tower, covered in a spiral of gleaming white carvings, horses and chariots and trees and people, lots of people. They were all smashed together, climbing over each other on the way up. Alex couldn't quite make out all of it, but there was more, a lot more. The funeral was outdoors, in a garden looking out from the hill. It happened, but Alex wasn't paying attention. A lady in black read a thing, a guy in black read another thing. Amy, Alex's small, light-haired stepmom, thanked all of them for coming and then burst into tears. People came and hugged her. Was he supposed to care about these people? Were they his family? Was he supposed to go talk to them? Did they even know he existed or what he could do? The service ended without Alex really noticing. We need to leave, said Alex's mother. People were getting up, shaking hands, light hugging. A purple-haired woman was glancing over in their direction. Now? Didn't you say there was going to be food? I bet they have fancy food, like snails. Something doesn't feel right, she said. Of course it doesn't feel right, said Alex. This is by far the weirdest situation I've ever been in. Maybe. It was at least a contender. No, 
Coming here was a bad idea, said Mom. Really bad. She unlatched her purse and started rummaging for her phone. I got carried away. We're already here, said Alex. We might as well... We've paid our respects. Alex started the sentence as a general counterpoint. Time to go. But midway through, the casket sitting at the edge of the hill caught his attention. And a little voice in the back of his head went, You leave. You never see his face. Come on, Alex thought. Like that makes any difference. He's dead. And he's just another person to you. You have a dad. You have a family. Things are good. You don't need a dead person's face to make things better. But what if it could? We might as well... We've paid our respects, said his mother. Time to go. Might as well say a proper goodbye, finished Alex. Mom took a deep breath and turned to look at him. She scratched his head. Isn't that something people say at these things? Said Alex. Alex, she said, in the nicest possible way she could muster. But nice wasn't really her strong suit. That doesn't mean anything. There's no such thing as a proper goodbye. Something came over Alex then. Something cold and warm at the same time. Like being scared and being calm. Alex stood up and started walking towards the casket. His mother grabbed his arm. What are you doing? I have to do something, said Alex. Anything. I can't just come here and then leave. I, My dad died or something. So what? Said mom. Her face flushed pink. You never met him. Are you going to go hug Amy over there, who you've also never met? If you need to hug someone, you can hug me. Not with that attitude, said Alex. Mom's grip tightened. Alex, your dad associated with bad people. These are bad people, Alex. You don't know that. Maybe they've changed. Maybe they were never that bad, and you just hate people and ignore them when they're worried about you. It's a separate issue, Alex, said Mom. She was fuming now. I hate these people because I know them. They may fool you with all this pretty stuff, but they did not get it by being decent. Well, if you hate them so much, maybe you should divorce. Oh, I'm not joking around, Alex. Ow! He twisted his arm away from her. He rubbed at the spot her fingers had been. Some of the people in the garden noticed the commotion and were sending discreet little glances their way. Issa tried to regain her composure, but dropped her head instead. When she looked up, she didn't look angry anymore, just tired. I left your father to protect you from him, she said, so quietly he could barely hear her. And all this? She motioned around at the garden and up to the mansion. I kept you away because I knew he would suck you into his world like he did with me. And he'd ruin you like he ruins everyone who loves him. Alex learned two things from that sentence. One, his mother still loved his father. Not in a romantic way, no, but she loved him nonetheless. Despite all her hatred for him, you could hear it in her voice so clearly when she said it. It didn't make complete sense that love and hate could live together like that, so closely they became one thing. But he could never really make sense of his mother, just like he could never really make sense of himself. And here was a moment where it was so clear that he was her son. The rage and the pain stuck to the roof of her mouth, the helplessness and confusion in her eyes. He would have hugged her if it weren't for the second thing he learned. It wasn't Alex's father who never came to see him. 
It was his mother who never let him. You... You kept me from him? Said Alex. Yes, she said. If you knew how dangerous... Did he ever try to find me? I don't know. I never opened any of his letters. Alex just stared at her. He was a criminal. Mom, I don't even know what he looks like. You threw out all we his can photos. Talk about this on the way home. No, said Alex. I'm not leaving. Please, she said, just a little desperately. Trust me. But he was already on his way to the casket, and there was nothing she could do about it. So that was kind of amazing. Uh, in your own words, what is your story about? So usually I describe cosmic apologies as it's like a Narnia meets the wire sort of situation. So there's magic and wonder, but also very human emotions, motivations, and there's a deep dive into a complicated society. I spent a lot of time world building. Um, and that was sort of like my main motivation for writing the book. But um, so it's about two kids who they get roped into an interdimensional smuggling ring. Um, and it's also about this world uh, where they go to where it's um, so they're both from that world, or at least their ancestors are. And so they try to connect to this world and search for a home there. One of the things we've talked about in the past, but when you contacted me about submitting a work on the show, one of the first things you said was exactly that part about The Wire and Narnia. And that resonated with me so powerfully. One, because both of those works are seminal to my development as a human being. But also there's a, a project that I've similarly been working on that's taken like a lot of world building for me, years and years of it that uh, I'm like in world building hell and with it. But the way I've always tried to one hand describe it is Lord of the Rings meets the wire. And so to see you uh, use those particular words that particular way, just like, oh, shit, like I've absolutely got to hear more from this guy. And it might be something, you know, that just happens more commonly than I think, <laughs> but uh, just to to have you out there in the universe going around with these uh, supernatural things in your head that you sought to kind of relate to in that way just felt so kindred. And before I had read a word, really got me excited about talking to you further about it. Uh, so describe the world a little bit. Uh, what makes your world unique and and not without giving too much away? What what type of place is is this other dimension? So yeah, kind of back to the the Narnia slash wire slash Lord of the Rings sort of thing. Yeah, I think I think when it comes to a lot of fantasy that I grew up reading and that, you know, still sort of dominates the world, or at least, you know, the Western world. Like fantasy, it kind of it can feel like sort of this white person's mythology of European culture. So like I was always into the knights and the dragons and the uh, castles and kings and stuff, but and and in a way that like that is a part of my heritage, right? I'm I am an American, so like the cultural the culture I grew up with is is very much connected to that. But at the same time, like 
as a person of color, as a Asian American, Taiwanese American, I, I felt like, yeah, I felt like, okay, that also, one, I feel like that kind of world doesn't represent me or doesn't, like, I don't feel as connected to it. But also, I don't feel like it represents, like, our international so, sort of globalizing world. And so, sort of the worlds that I'm creating um, is, it's basically like a, a, mythologiz uh, a mythologization. I don't know what that word is. Basically, it's like, yeah, basically it's, it's sort of a refraction of our whole world instead of just like one part of it, like the European part of it. So it was really important to me that this world, it has those castles and um, kings and queens elements, but that that stuff only exists in the context of a huge world with, you know, cultures that are based on every part of like the human experience. And like, I think real life, like, and especially in America, like sort of the central setting of this world, the central country of this world for my stories really is sort of like an, a fantasy version of the USA in that like, it's very mixed. All of the people, like the, its origin story is migration. There's deep, 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 problems to it but there's also a huge optimism to it so it's all that but of course there's magic so yeah there's magic and and of course it's it's more uh, geared to more at my personal aesthetic which is sort of like um i don't know i guess i would say it's like yeah it's like cultural mashup like way way more than anything else so that's the world and it's like it's super complicated it has like the world building i do like I, i've i started when i was basically a kid like i have a journal that goes back to when i was like seven how old are you now i'm 24 so the world building i've done has gone a long way and it's it's gone through a lot of changes i like had to like adultify it at one point at one point like i had to I realized that I learned that rivers go from the mountain to the sea. So I had to do, redo all of my maps. Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, and then it's crazy. So like, it's, it's really driven my also, not just like my writing, but also like my academic interests and success because I got really obsessed with history because I, you know, sort of like, you know, get inspired by it. World history in particular um, I love the ways in which, like, these different huge civilizations we think of separately are happening at the same time. Like, I have this idea for, um, like, basically, like, a parallel... Now, this is kind of off-topic, but... <laughs> um, but, like, there's... Like, I have an idea for, like, a parallel TV show in which, like, you're looking at, like like ancient China and ancient Rome at the same time. And, um, but like, that's kind of how I think of my world building too. But right, like yeah, big, so sweeping epic things that, you know, they might not have a, a through line connection at any one particular meeting point, but it's important for the vastness of the world to be communicated that, well, there's big shit going on here and there's big shit going on here. The two may never yeah. meet, but that is the the fabric of your world, and you've, you've taken the kind of the time to to build that out for your for your own narrative goals. Yeah, yeah, and I just I really want people to get a sense of history. My world has like over ten thousand years of history to it, 
But I, I really want to pe- people when they're reading to get the sense that they're existing in a moment in history, which is how I, I kind of want people to see our world too. And that like, you're not just looking at it like a single narrative that someone told you about your life or about this time period we live in or about any time period, but that you realize that like, oh, people are telling stories about the time we're in or about that time. And the reality is that those stories are just part of this endless world in which endless stories can be told and retold about it. I want people to get overwhelmed with the vastness of the world and then realize that like, oh yeah, that is how big any world is. Like both in terms of the depth of each character is a world unto themselves, but like the whole world that, and then the context that they exist in is like so stupidly complicated that you couldn't possibly reduce them to one thing. Um, well, let me ask you about that contextually as far as like how you've designed the story. So I don't know if uh, you've read the Game of Thrones book. I have, yeah. Okay, so one of the things that the show has done a pretty good job, well, actually, it's, it's my humble opinion that the show is actually better than the books. And one of the reasons why I prefer the show to the books is because there are times when in describing Westeros, cause I, I love the rich history, but there are times where you feel like he's putting off what the story is actually about to give you this history. That's very Tolkien esque, like from the Semillant, like where he's giving you this sense of where all this comes from and, and all that background. And even if it, when you're slated in the current day, you're, you're getting a lot of information, but it feels like there's genealogy of houses that's more important. So you're setting the stage for this confrontation between humanity and the White Walkers. But it's 5,000 pages, you know, at the time that we're in real life, you know, at the end of 2017, without there ever being this, this real conflict that happens. You know, like he, he keeps putting it off as he sets the stage for it, the show did a better job of prior to this last season, this last season, how it was very, very problematic for me for a lot of reasons. And that, that is another topic, <laughs> but uh, prior to this last season, it, they gave you good glimpses of what that conflict would look like. Like hard home, for instance, is something that big battle with John and, and the walkers and whatnot. And you see the night King, what, like that was something that wasn't in the books, although the books had already covered that span of time. Like the books kind of treat it as an aside. And I thought that the genius of how they paced that was that they included that because it reminded you what the stakes were and it reminded you of who the true enemy was. Whereas I feel like that's almost kind of forgotten in the books. So my really long setup for that question in a very Martinesque kind of way was in your story, do you feel like the background at any point takes center stage um, in the crafting of your story, because is it as much about that as it is about the actual uh, current adventure of these kids in this inter- interdimensional smuggling? Uh, no. So I, th- I actually really don't like the show mm-hmm. <laughs> for Game of Thrones and love the books. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I do think that I get what you're saying about the, the the sort of world building can kind of get in the way, which is something that I'm very wary of. But actually what I love about the books is, is not so much the world building, which I do love, but 
It, that's not why I think they're great. I think they're great because get a look into the heads of the characters in a way you don't do on the show. And that's what's sort of important to me when it comes to writing the story for me, is that character motivations are really clear, right? That's why sort of The Wire is such a great example for me. Um, Agreed, yeah. Is that, right? Um, yeah, like everyone has their own, and this is true in, in Game of Thrones too, everyone has their own really complicated reasons for why they're doing what they're doing. And and for me, yeah. that's what's most important, right? Like, and like character growth and character development and, and really getting to know a character and, you know, uh, going with them on their journey. Yeah, and what I love about The Wire too is that there is a ton of world building. I mean, it's, you know, it's a real place, but I mean, Baltimore is a real place, but... Like the world building in the story is done through the characters. Like the you get the sense that the world is not a bunch of these like in Game of Thrones these like sort of timeless series of names and legends. But but I, I think you do in in a Game of Thrones get the sense that like people are these aren't legends that exist on their own. These are these are things that are being told right. And I think in the Wire it's especially so where you encounter the world through the characters. And you encounter the elements of the world through how the characters perceive them. And that's really how I do world building too. And what makes it interesting for me is I, is for instance, like when I write sort of like a history or draw a map, right? I'm not just doing that as this omniscient narrator. Like whenever I write some sort of history, I'm doing it from the perspective of somebody in that world. Because I, I realize that any sort of attempt to write down or describe history is always part of someone's, like a narrative that someone's creating about their own world and their own life and their place in it. Um, and that is interesting to me, right? Not necessarily, oh, this king had a son and this king had a son and son, but but like sort of why you know, people would look at that and think, oh, therefore I could, I should follow this person. Or like, you know, I think that's another huge theme of my books is like nations, which I think are dumb. Um, but like a, a huge part you think of this, the idea of nations are dumb. Oh yeah. I think, yeah. I Or nationalism in general, right? Like the idea, yeah. Like the idea that we owe allegiance to an abstract idea of a people, right? Like, as opposed to like ourselves or humanity as a whole, as a writer, like that's one of my main concerns is like, how did we get to this point? So the idea that we're a nation or like a nation is a thing has not existed for a very long time. And like, to me, it's, it's fascinating how people create that and how people sustain that. Um, and that's sort of a big part of my story too, is, is how these two kids are thrown into the civil war um, spoiler alert. Um, and, and they have to, and, and they sort of like deal with it from every side of the situation until they realize how every side of the situation is absurd. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's sort of where I come at it with, but yeah. So the <laughs> world building being a part of how characters perceive the world, not just an omniscient narrator telling things how they are, but just some of the characters that who make up the main thrust of the story, do they exist as some type of statement uh, against nationalism or against any of the things that we've, we've just talked yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, I, I try not to make explicit arguments in my writing, uh, especially explicit historical arguments, but uh, <laughs> they're definitely in there um, just based on my worldview. But uh, I guess 
a lot of the characters that the main two kids would encounter would sort of hold different views on the idea of like their country, Southwest as a nation, right? Um, but uh, I think the kids themselves are just figuring it out. If if there's any statement about nationalism, it's that you know what what they eventually understand is that like it doesn't exist, right? Like the the state doesn't exist actually; it only exists in our mind, which is which is like it's which is very real in a sense, and and, and this sort of ties back to like the characters themselves but i think nationalism has such a strong power and this is like a narrative engine for me but i think i think it's so strong as a concept because people want a place to belong right they want home and that sort of brings you back to the like the one of the main themes of young adult fiction which i totally forgot to mention this is it's like middle grade slash young adults um but that is really important to me in, in that like the story of a kid trying to find his place in the world and, and trying to see where his or her home is right is to me like really parallel to like like a lot of people like trying to figure out who they are right like nationalism is is political but it's also when it when it comes to being personal it's about identity it's about like feeling like you know who you are and i think like both the tragedy and the power of 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 realizing that like it's all sort of in your head like the construction of identity both like uh individually and collectively that's is kind of all in our heads like i think there's a tragedy to that which is like oh yeah like none of this is inherently real but the power in that is like oh we have the power to shape what is real right like we have the power to shape like on the personal level your own identity um, on the national level, like the identity of who we are together, right? So I think if if there's any message about nationalism, it's that. And as far as identity, character of Alex, for instance, we have this, he's in the midst of that territory that you're describing as he's kind of lost and wandering, climbing around um, in that fog. And that I think is relatable to, you know, anyone who's familiar with Adolescence. Well, just how how you made a decision that, in addition to all the things that a teenager would have to deal with, that are encompassed in who Alex is and who he's becoming, you also burdened him with some being queer. <laughs> well, yeah, being queer as one of his challenges, um, and, and in that process, his relationship with his mom being kind of um, contentious to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like. What informed those choices? Um, you know, that's interesting. I like I actually the way Alex kind of came about. Like I never planned for my characters to be queer, even if like it is a conscious sort of goal in my mind to like represent queer people. But I think I probably just started writing Alex and this group of friends, and then was sort of drawing on my experience of being like in a group of guys and like having really close friendships with other guys. And as a queer person myself, part of the complications of growing up in that situation was that you just, 
you know, like you have crushes on people like anybody else, except for they happen to be your best friend instead of like the teenage movie trope of, you know, the girl across the room or the cafeteria or something. And and I think there's there's something really interesting narratively, but of, of course, personally, about your object of affection being who someone who would in any other story be like your like sidekick, right? Um, or the person you look up to, like, I, I think part of being queer is, is like one of the main themes, if you can say that of being queer is like these blurring of, of boundaries of these normal boundaries in which people in stories and people in life separate, um, mm. the people in their lives. Like when you're queer, like those things sort of start to rush together. Um, so, I felt like that was just a natural place for the story to go, especially since I, I feel like, you know, my characters in general um, and sort of the idea of traveling between worlds mm-hmm. is right. Like um, is, is that like, is, is sort of the in-betweenness of things. Right. Um, someone told me recently that um, in some cultures, uh, they don't have a conception of like gay or lesbian or queer, right? Or really like deviant sexuality as we would term it in like the Western tradition. But instead, I think the quote is like, oh, we, we don't, we don't have gay or queer. The closest word we have is gatekeeper. Um, and these people, like, and, and the queerness is sort of just a side effects of a deeper, um, a deeper thing about them that makes them special, um, which is that they can like their thought to like be able to open people up to other worlds, right? Which I thought was like I like start, started bawling because I was like, ah, <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I'm a gatekeeper. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Um. But I, and I, I, th- I think that's like was latently before that was ever told to me, like definitely a theme of how I explore queerness is cause, cause for me, it's always like I've never identified with quote unquote gay culture felt weird about just saying like, Oh yeah, like there's nothing different about me except for like who I prefer. Right. That it's queerness has always felt like more to me than that. And I think that it's because yeah, like queerness just feels like a part of something bigger to me that isn't necessarily cultural, but it's, it, it's like, you know, it, it's, it's the way in which I view the world, right. Um, the way in which I, in which certain boundaries aren't like certain dividing lines are less important to me. Um, um, or just like, you know, a way in which like I grew up viewing things separately from, the people around me, especially in my family. Um, which brings me to his mom. So that also like felt real to me. Um, and I, I think it's because I, I've tried before to write like young adult middle grade fiction. And I always did it in this mold of Harry Potter and Percy Jackson, where like, you know, the parents are dead or captured or out of the picture, right? Like in a lot of these, like, um, stories about kids, the the parents are always just conveniently gone for some reason. Um, so you can focus on the kid's story. Uh, and I, I tried to do that at first and then I just couldn't. Like I just, because it didn't feel real to me. I, I feel like so much of being a kid is dealing with your parents and your relationship and, and what shapes you in this period of time is totally not just your peers, but like totally your parents. And I think 
parent-kid relationships are so interesting because they have to be so many things, right? Like, and they have to be changing all the time. Um, it's one of the few relationships that you have from the beginning to the end of your life. It was really important important to me and, and felt real for me that the main sort of emotional relationships in my books uh, or in my writing, like, it just happens now that a lot of those become parents or fa- parent figures. Yeah, because maybe it's like a metaphor for adolescence is like, you know, the parent is a threshold guardian for adulthood i don't know <laughs> just some some, <laughs> some joseph campbell in there. there's a there's a couple of things there that i think deserve to get unpacked a little bit but speaking to i think one of your broader points about queerness being about a larger identity than who you prefer but also you personally not necessarily identifying with gay culture how do those two things exist in the same space just be from a standpoint of because it could just be like even a semantic conversation but for someone to kind of understand like your process not only in in the creation of these characters but also your process as identifying yourself and and perhaps the the worldview or the the prism by which you might want your characters to be viewed through how does that how does that correlate Exactly. Because I think there's some people that would come across as confusing or in some cases even paradoxical, but I don't think it necessarily is. But I think it would just, it would require you to, to, uh, to kind of distinguish it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the way that I see gay culture, at least the way that I've experienced it is it's, it's like pride parade, right? Like where, like it's one, mostly white, uh, mostly sexual, um, you know, like, I, there's just, like, not a lot of clothing, lots of rainbows, which is, in a way, I'm like, great. But, like, I, I don't know. Like, it just, and I, like, I don't want to come across as, like, I think that's not, I don't think that's valid or a valid way of being, of being gay or queer. But, like, personally, I've just never felt a part of that, right? Like, or have never felt, yeah, welcome there, even. I grew up in a very religious household, and I spent, like, most of my life really hating that I was queer or trying to, like, or just believing that, like, it would go away eventually or it was just something that I had to deal with, like, it was another sin that I had to deal with. So for me, hard to help celebrate queerness in the way that pride does. But, like, but like that's a way in which I want to to be a part of that like like there's a way in which i I do want to celebrate queerness in the way that pride does but there's also the sex part of gay culture which is like the whole hookup thing like that is a huge part of it like undeniably right and like as someone who was very sheltered and had and still has very strong moral slash religious convictions like not so much about sex and sexuality anymore but like for someone who grew up that way it just wasn't part of my conception of being queer right like my conception of being queer was all about how i perceived people and how i related to people on like a friendship human level and dealing with having feelings for someone while also like being their friend having feelings for someone that like you know like like I could never express to anybody around me. That's like sort of the opposite of like freeness and openness that was really hard for me, but also I I feel like taught me. Yeah. Like it it was really like a a very like 
internal introspective perspective shift sort of thing, right? Like, like being queer was a very internal process for me rather than this like very outward process of like exploring your sexuality, right? Which is how I feel like it's often read as. Right. I think, I think that comes across, but how does that relate to like, so when you said that it felt unwelcome, is it because you feel like that spiritual aspect doesn't really exist in, in how either it's portrayed culturally or in your own contact with it? I, th- I think the, the, just the narrative of, of gay culture in American media is just very different from how I experienced it. But I think specifically, I think what I'm getting at is specifically without going too deep into how we define queer culture, because I'm not an expert, but I feel like in a lot of queer narratives in media are about like one, like coming out to like exploring your sexuality, right? Three, like the relationship between queer people and society, right? Um, Like with all this gay marriage stuff, like the, the very public fight for queer rights is in gay marriage and like trans bathroom stuff, which is all very important to me as well, but like not nearly as important as spirituality. Right. I think that's the main difference is like queerness for me has not been a physical or like public, you know, societal political journey. It's been a spiritual one. Queerness for me is completely connected to religion and god and and so i think that's what i meant by like introspective and i don't know if the other stuff is reductive or i feel like it's reductive i feel like it's just not a way in 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 which all people have experienced queerness and a way in the primary way in which i experienced it the unwelcome part is i think different the unwelcome part is mostly about just how much i hate hookup culture and how superficial sort of gay hookup culture is or can be or just not even hookup culture but like like what your like what your value is in 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 queer circles is often based on how you look like whiteness like i feel like racism and sexism and body shaming is like at peak levels in queer culture and as like a person of color that's not very welcome. So there's definitely a totem pole of attractiveness when it comes to like society as a, like, you know, American society as a large, but like, it's so, so clear in, in queer culture, um, like sort of where you stand as a person of color. Oh, got you. So like, there's just, there's a latent racism yeah, involved. Racism. Yeah, but, like, also, like, you know, like, how you should look in terms of your body, how you should present yourself in terms of your sexuality. Like, there's there's just, like, a lot of, like, specific things about the way queer culture is manifested here that are just, like, very, I think, all like, a lot of queer people would recognize sucks. So, it's not right. just me. That brings together an interesting collection of thoughts that I, I guess I would try to sum up in, in this question. And the question itself might be reductive, but given the the scope of the conversation, I think it's worth asking. But I guess it comes back to making me wonder is that considering your very specific set of experiences, you know, a lot of people describe fantasy fiction as escapist. And while I would say more so that, you know, a lot of times, like with uh, George Orwell, what he was trying to do was trying to shine a light on things that are happening in the real world, but he felt like the story would be 
more accessible to people to be able to see the truth behind the curtains he was trying to part by creating uh, fables around them. Um, or like, or to your point about Narnia, because you know Narnia is a is a Christian allegory, and C.S. Lewis felt like that was a good way to kind of express his belief system by uh, telling this. In, in this way. So it wasn't escapist as much as it was a tool to try and have people think about these things differently than they had and make it accessible to them in a way that um, maybe spirituality or religion wasn't before. So given your thoughts on spirituality and given how your characters kind of came about, my question is, is this uh, a means for you to kind of exist in a world where some of the aspects of your own identity are more comfortable is it an attempt to share that story from that specific perspective in a way that is more accessible and more palatable? Or is it none of those things? It's just you writing and it just happens to have touchstones to some of the things that are important to you. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, and I think that's, that's even the story of the kids themselves in the, in, in the book is, is the other world is sort of, they're like, Oh, maybe like I don't fit in here. Maybe in this other world I will, right? You, you kind of talked about a fantasy as escapism, right? Uh, yeah, for, for me, definitely the opposite. It's a world that feels more real to me. I think the narratives that are out there about queer people, about Asian American people, people of color in general, um, even about religion, right? Which is a part of my upbringing. Like the narratives that are out there are reductive, super reductive. There aren't enough of them, right? Like my specific intersection of identities is like a really complicated and and dense one. So so yeah, so so the narratives that are out there about me, right, in any in any from any perspective, those are the fantasy, right? Like those feel fake and sometimes destructive, sometimes escapist, right? They don't feel real. And the way people interact with me in daily life also sometimes feels less real, right? Because oftentimes a part of my identity is hidden or misread or misjudged, right? Like there's so many chances for that, right? Because of who I am. So sort of like I don't experience reality very fully, (laughs) I feel, because nobody is ever really dealing with the real me in any substantial way. Right. Is that something that you, you're choosing to do? Is that just a byproduct of who you are, do you think? It's just a byproduct of who I am, right? Part of being queer is coming out to every, choosing to come out to every person that you meet, right? To, to or to not. So like that part of you is already hit, also always hidden. Like <clears throat> my religious upbringing is hidden to people who don't, you know, didn't grow up, grow up with me in that way. And then like, there's just so much misunderstanding and misinformation and stereotypes about being of Asian, East Asian descent that like, you know, most of those conversations are fraught, Um, right? So like people are constantly talking over and under and around me, right? Um, They're, yeah. So yeah, and and just like engaging with me in ways that don't acknowledge my experience at all, right? Um, So that's, yeah, so that that's just like part of what I have to navigate. And so in in a sense like this world like doesn't feel real because the 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 stories that are constantly being told about me that are being re- reinforced by the people around me are are untrue, right? Are don't fully encapsulate who I am. So I feel like fantasy is the only arena in which 
I can make all of that true, right? Like I can make the things that are true in the wholest sense about all of my identities and the ways they interact. I can build a place where that makes sense and and that's self-evident. Do you feel like this story, um, well, first let me ask you, how much of it have you completed? Depends on how you measure that, but like in terms of actual presentable writing, about like 20%, I'd say. Yeah, because anytime with the world building, like, you know, you feel like, you know, you've put in the hours and you've put in the time, you've got all these pages and pages of notes of like what your world is. And you realize, yeah. oh, shit, no one's <laughs> ever going to see any of this. <laughs> and it's it's frustrating. But at the same time, like, you know, you put in the work and so you feel good about it. And it's it's nice to see the, some of that come, come alive. But like, yeah, like a lot of it, sometimes you feel like you're doing it all for yourself, like a hobby as opposed to you. um yeah, really writing sure. but uh but um but yeah so i know i know that place i know that distinction that you just made for yourself um so about 20 percent. okay so you're about a fifth of the way down and so is it do you see this as being like you mentioned harry potter and percy jackson like a, a arc of books or have this, has the story kind of already revealed itself to you as being standalone and this this one book will cover it um the world itself is something that i will continue to write in probably for the rest of my life but as far as the story of these two characters themselves i don't there's a lot of stuff i want to cover with these characters so it's probably going to end up taking more than one book but um yeah but as you've plotted it right now you you feel like is the plan or is there's not a plan are you just writing and then it'll figure itself out yeah, there's not there's not a super detailed plan. There's um mm-hmm. there's stuff that I want to happen, right? But like I don't know if the story will take me there in one book. And what is the if there is one, what would you say is the biggest impediment to you completing it? Mm, emotional labor. Mm-hmm. That's real son. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah. Um, cause like right now I'm in a place where it's, I have the time for now, but I've had plenty of time before. Like I've been like my undergrad thesis and my graduate thesis were both like working on projects like these. And I had all of the time and still was only able to write a certain amount like 20%. Because the stuff I write, even though it's fantastical, like as we've spoken about extensively, it's very personal. So, and I don't feel like what I'm doing is good unless it really comes from me in a meaningful way, which means, which is, can be painful. But I have been doing NaNoWriMo this month and have been building up an endurance um, and figuring out new ways to get around that and, and just get material out and um, without dying. But so anyway. <laughs> that's um, that's a really interesting point because a lot of writers you speak to describe writing as being cathartic and as really the only way that they have to kind of process some of their own shit in a way that's meaningful to them. Would you say that that's not the case for you or would you say that, no, there's a lot of that to you as well, but getting to that place requires you to crawl through barbed wire? Yeah, for sure. The second thing. It is really cathartic slash like it's like a lot of writers say like it's 
like it's not just what I do, it's who I am, right? It's it's the only way I can really like I can't see myself doing anything else. But it's I, I think the best way someone's ever put it for me is being an artist is looking into thing that might destroy you and hoping it doesn't. And I, I so it, it's like, you know, it's it's about confronting the hard things and, and the fears in small and big ways. But yeah, I, I think once the confrontation happens, then it is cathartic. But something can be cathartic and also exhausting, I think. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Running. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean the, one, the thing I always think of is, I can't remember who, I can't attribute the quote well, but writing is easy. All you have to do is sit down at the typewriter and bleed. Like, that's the one that always reverberates back to me. Partly because it's just visceral imagery, and I dig that, but also because mm-hmm. I found it to be very, very true in my own experience and one of the mistakes that i've as a lifelong writer that i've made was cordoning myself off from having people look at my work like i would read things that said that that was like a big problem like that's something that you needed to not do and i just considered myself to be the exception to the rules like no my writing's not going to suffer for it and i'm not going to suffer for it like it's fine you know i had all these reasons why it was the way that i'd gone about it and it did not serve me well, or at least not for the entire time. Like, I do think that there was a, a time where it was important just because I was really young and I didn't want certain influences. And, you know, it was too fragile to hear like a criticism that would then like have me careening into a completely different inauthentic direction than when I actually wanted. You know, I didn't necessarily trust the people that I would have put it in the hands of in the first place to kind of get it, to know what I was trying to do. And so, you know, things of that nature. And that, that, that can all be true, but I, I definitely got to a place where it crippled me in, in that sense. And that's just me sharing. Like, I'm not saying that anything you told me says that you suffer from the same thing. I'm simply just sharing what my own experience has been. And I, uh, I've only within the last couple of years gotten to a place where I've been able to feel better about that. So when I ask, you know, what your, what your big impediment is, I hope that in the sense of community that being a part of this project will hopefully foster and hopefully even some of the conversations that you and I have had over the process, I hope that it can help alleviate some of the, the pain and push you towards the prose because uh, your writing is amazing. Oh, and you. I can't wait to, to see where it goes. And, you know, I'm certainly not uh, trying to take on the role of trying to put more pressure on you. But, <laughs> um, but from the standpoint of amongst uh, the, this fledgling community of, of the hidden scribes and what it seeks to offer a community of writers who haven't taken that next step to either finishing or, or doing what's required of them to, to be living the life that they feel like they've been put here for. I hope that we can give you some of that peace in the process so that we can all be the beneficiaries of, of your good work and, and your very unique perspective of the world that we live in. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for sharing. I know that, uh, you know, part of the, uh, the process for you is, is putting some of, of this out there into the universe is, is a huge step for you. That doesn't come without a share of, of consequences. And so, thank you. No problem. Sam also gets a producer credit for this episode. So in addition to his performances during the selection, all that splicing and crosstalk that worked so well, that was all him. So big ups to you, buddy. You did a phenomenal job. I really enjoyed that conversation. And I know that you are all as eager as I am to hear more from Sam and all of our other scribes. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, disciples, all about us. Encourage someone you know who is a writer who hasn't gotten paid for it yet, but has put in the work to submit. That person could be you. So 
if you're interested in making a submission you can find us at the hidden scribes at gmail.com and on all the socials the instagram and twitter and facebook and the like uh support sam himself with the hashtag ths cosmic apologies on all of your various platforms also guys it's really happening i teased in a previous episode that we were going to be doing a live event and that is indeed going down we're partnering with wordspace and writing workshops dallas for a spring uh, event you'll hear more about that in the pods and uh posts to come exciting and you can find me on the twitter at mark underscore million that is m-a-r-k underscore m-i-l-l-i-e-n we out